Hi, sweet magical podcast listener. It's Amy and... Risa! Here from the Missing Witches Podcast. We wanted to let you know that we are getting ready for our annual May fundraiser for Native Women's Shelters. It's our third year. It's the fourth year that we've donated our proceeds, but the third year that we're doing this fundraiser. And it's become a community creation that we'd love to invite you to help us build. Every year we donate our own proceeds for the month of May from our Patreon and missingwitches.com. And then we started to put together a raffle with prizes donated by the incredible fucking magical artists, artisans, healers, poets, practitioners in our wide witch web. And it just got bigger. So to participate in the raffle, just make a donation of $10 or more to the Native Women's Shelter of Montreal or to your own local nonprofit supporting Native women or Native people that's close to your own heart and home. And then just send the receipt for your donation to missingwitches at gmail.com and you'll be entered in our great big prize draw. I think we do one entry for every $10 of your donation. So if you make a $100 donation, that's 10 entries, something like that. That's right. Yum. And to learn more about this project, you can check out missingwitches.com slash reparations or again, email us at missingwitches at gmail.com. And oh my gosh, uh, and oh my goddess, and oh my, <laughs> all the goddesses. If you are a listener interested in donating a prize, we are fucking thrilled to hear from you. So please email us, uh, same address, missingwitches at gmail.com, and we will be excited to celebrate you and share your work and join in this act of reparations and community love together. Thank you. Bless of fucking be. Bienvenidos, welcome to Tu Tia Bruja. I'm Bex Carlos, your designated Tia Bruja. A few orders of business before we start. First, we are still spreading the word about Missing Witches fundraiser in May to benefit Indigenous women's shelters. So if you have $10 to donate, it will get you involved in the raffle. There's tons of amazing prizes and services from a lot of witches and brujas in the community. Thank you for doing that if you are capable. And if you can't afford it right now, totally fine. Please just share it and spread the word. That is so helpful in ensuring that people are still seeing it and that it's getting traction. Additionally, I would love to thank Carla of People in Español. Funny how the retrograde can just get information to you later, but better late than never. We were featured as one of the Witchy Bruja podcasts to like check out. So thank you, Carla, for highlighting the show. For the vision of the show now, it's so much more heartfelt and comes from a place of ancestral healing and cutting out a lot of generational trauma, right? In the last episode, a lot of people have said that they gained a lot from it. I'm super thankful for that because I think we do have to heal that wound with our Spanish ancestors. Something that I realized that we gained from the Spanish in addition to the language and Catholicism is judgment. So funny story, I was under the impression that there were only like four to six different castes. No. In what was New Spain, there were 16 different tiers within their caste system. So thank you. Shout out to Maria for bringing that to my attention. I think that's going to be a future episode. 
But wow. Wow. And it makes sense, honestly, because a lot of my family members are very judgmental. There's a lot of people who do not fuck with me now because I have come out and said that I'm a bruja and therefore I'm evil. I worship Satanas and it's upsetting, but it's also just like if you don't want to make the effort to understand me, that it is what it is. The other day, <laughs> I had a moment where it kind of came full circle, and I really do feel like I'm doing this work that I'm meant to do. As you know, I do some things virtually, so sometimes I do readings or I offer classes. I had offered some cannabis magic classes, and so I was smoking a blunt and burning hell money or ancestor money, as I also call it. And I just had this moment of like, my grandmother had to leave a town, a pueblo in Mexico because people thought she was a witch. And there was all this judgment and critique of her lifestyle, even though like she herself would never say she was a witch. That's what people assumed of her. And she came to the US and because of her, we have all these different opportunities and things that have led to my life now. And look at me now. I am taking the opportunity to teach magic classes. I travel for work. Like I'm actually going to be in Denver on May 28th from noon until five. So if you are in the Denver area and want to do an in-person tarot reading, I will be at Ritual Craft. Check out the show notes for the booking link for that. That is me healing generational trauma. That is me being okay with having knowledge and gifts that are unusual to people and having options to also do that. May we all be healing the generational trauma, the ancestral bullshit that we are carrying. And I really do think that that is a big reason that I am so accepting of the weird. I did cling to Catholicism for a long time, probably longer than I should have, because I had all these morbid topics. Even as a little kid, I worried that there was something evil inside of me. And that I would be possessed at any time. I kind of blame that on watching The Exorcist probably too young, but I digress. Uh, Today's guest is Troy Taylor. And Troy Taylor, he's a podcaster, a co-host of the podcast American Hauntings Podcast. Very good. Check it out. He wrote the book, The Devil Came to St. Louis, talks about the historic background of the St. Louis exorcism, which was the inspiration for the movie The Exorcist, which is originally based off of William Blatty's book, The Exorcist. The thing about St. Louis is we are a small place. So when things happen here, everyone knows about it. That being said, the St. Louis exorcism happened in three different parts. It happened in the house in Belnor. It happened at the campus of SLU, St. Louis University, in the former rectory. It's been replaced since. And it's cool because SLU actually owns up to that. Like it's in its FAQs related to the university and also the St. Alexian Brothers Hospital, which is no longer there. It's been a case on my mind for a long time, especially coming up to the forefront recently. There is a podcast that discusses exorcisms, but has a very Catholic, I don't know if I want to say agenda. The thing that made me the most upset is that there is this incessant need to continue the narrative that the little boy had played with a Ouija board when honestly I think the scarier reality is that he did nothing to bring it on there was no dabbling in the occult and Troy and I have a conversation about 
the case, how he got to a place to make that his day job, because it's really cool. You know, it's, it's amazing when people through nothing else than sheer dedication and force of will can make something happen. I know as a tarot reader, I've been able to do that. I know a lot of you who listen to the show have also made amazing things happen in their careers or just manifested really cool things in your life. I do want to say that this was originally an episode on my Patreon, so it came out in 2021. So some of the things that we're talking about are a little dated, and that's why. But let's jump into it. Today, I'm super blessed. There is someone here locally. He is super knowledgeable about ghosts. He's a crime buff. He's an author, co-host of American Hauntings podcast. Today, I have Troy Taylor. Thank you so much for being on the show. Sure. Happy to do it. How did you get to a point where you, you know, create a spooky day job? How did that happen? (laughs) That's just so fascinating to me. (laughs) Sheer force of will. And not worrying about where your groceries are coming from. You know, that's that was the beginning of it because it's not exactly one of those things that you go out and say that you're going to do when you're a kid. But actually, I did. Uh, this is what I always wanted to do if I possibly could. Uh, in my whole life, I had been interested in, you know, ghosts and hauntings and the unexplained and true crime and unsolved mysteries, all kinds of things. My great-grandfather was a police officer and he used to fill my head with all kinds of stories that were probably not suitable for anyone <laughs> my age. And I think that's what got me started. And, you know, I always loved history and I would always find all these historic stories or these true crime stories that all had ghostly elements to them. And so that I think is what really just got me started. And, you know, growing up, it was the same way I was looking for any kind of story in high school. You know, I was the guy that if you went to a haunted place or you heard about a haunted place, will tell Troy the story because he'll want to know. And I mean, it just sort of I just decided this is something that I really wanted to do. And in the early 90s, I started a ghost tour and wrote my first book. And that's literally what I've been doing ever since. And I've been lucky enough to, you know, expand and keep doing things. And it's just, it's been a fun. And I mean, I know how lucky I am, you know, that I get to do it as my actual job. But I mean, honestly, I made up a job. (laughs) Essentially, I just made it up. And that's what I started doing. So that's it. I love that so much because I'm a professional tarot reader. Well, see, there you go. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. I do. And it's if you have enough force of will, you can make anything happen. Yeah. I think so many people are so focused because, you know, our parents were boomers, you know, so they were like, get a job, go to college, get a job. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. like my dad was part of a union. Oh, mine too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so it's just one of those things. But I was like, no, I want to create art and be happy and be a spooky bitch forever. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Do you remember one of the first ghost stories that really sucked you in that you were just like, I can't get enough? Gosh, there were so many when I was a kid. You always got those scholastic readers. And I think they still do that kind of thing where you get the weekly reader thing and you can pick out books that you can buy. And I always bought all the ghost stories, all the true unexplained stories, anything I could get my hands on. So I was growing up as a kid reading about the screaming skull of England and the moving coffins or Barbados and things. But I think the thing that really hooked me when I was about 11, I picked up a book called Haunted Houses by a guy named Richard Weiner. He was a, you know, just a writer who, you know, traveled all over the country and wrote about ghosts. And I thought, that's right up my alley, you know. And I got really hooked on all his New Orleans stories. And uh, my parents took me to New Orleans took me to the places that were in the book, which was very cool. 
And I think that's kind of what sucked me in. Actually, it was an experience I had in high school that made me realize that, you know, this wasn't just stories. This was something that really, you know, there was something to this. Back to the, you know, if you know of a haunted place, tell Troy about it. So these people told me about this cemetery that was supposed to be super haunted. And I lived in a small town when I grew up. And so, you know, everything was out in the country. And so there was this cemetery. It was a, probably a half hour or so from where we lived. And so my brother and a couple of friends and I decided to go out there one night to check it out. You have to remember that I was in high school in the mid 80s. And in the mid 80s, there were Satanists, you know, everywhere, you know, <laughs> hiding under every bed. And so we always heard, oh, be careful if you go out there. There's men in black robes, you know, all that kind of stuff, silly stuff. And so anyway, we drove out there. It was a dark and stormy night for real. And this cemetery is in the woods off this gravel road. We had to drive back to it. The big thing that you had to do, the, the act of courage at the cemetery was to park your car at the cemetery gates with your headlights on, walk across the cemetery, and then walk back. That's it. But it was so scary that no one could do it kind of thing. I mean, that was the story that went around. So of course we had to try it. So we pull up, we park at the cemetery, you know, there's, there's fog, there's, you know, broken down tombstones. I mean, the whole thing, right? So we're walking across the cemetery. We walk all the way to the far side. We turn around and we start to walk back. I mean, it's no big deal. I mean, nothing has happened. It's not, you know, we're like, okay, well, this was dumb. So as we're walking back, we got about halfway across the cemetery and the headlights of my brother's car went out. So we're standing there in pitch darkness and we're not sure what to do. Do we run out of the cemetery because, I mean, there are apparently ghosts there and run back to the car? Or do we not go back to the car because, you know, maybe those Satanists are hiding in the back seat with an axe, you know, going to kill us. So we cautiously approached the car, got up, made sure there was no one inside, looked underneath because, you know, that was a big urban legend at the time. And there's no one under the car either. So my brother unlocks the door. It had been locked, leans in to see what's going on. Now we're thinking that, you know, nothing bad has happened. So now we're thinking the battery must be dead. Well, no, the battery isn't dead. But somehow, even with the doors locked, all the windows rolled up, the manual button for the headlights had been pushed in. So there was no way that could have happened. <laughs> not, not logically speaking. So we left this, the cemetery and I don't think I went back there for probably 10 years or more, something like that. It was a long time before I decided to go back. But that I think was the turning point for me where I was like, well, this isn't just stories. This actually can happen to just ordinary people. You know, you don't have to move into a haunted mansion or a castle somewhere or something. You can actually have something happen to you in real life. Yeah, wow. That's thank you so much for sharing that story with me. And you actually you kind of triggered a memory. So I was driving the other day, uh, when you mentioned the scholastic reader, in case you were wondering, they're still doing book fairs. But since we're in a pandemic, they put it in the fire lane and the kids were looking <laughs> and buying the books. Oh, that's awesome. That's encouraging for future kids. They're still yeah. gonna read those spooky books. Yeah. But kind of like you, I was definitely absorbing a lot of books. You know, I loved being able to read scary stuff, but kind of like you, a turning point for me was when I saw The Exorcist. Mm, yeah. That one, I think especially when I found out that it's based on a true story, true events, and your podcast did a six-part series where you talked about the whole story. 
and I have to say, that's probably one of the best breakdowns of everything that I've ever, you know, seeked out. And you got to interview all the key players in that exorcism. Does that ever feel surreal to you? Like, whoa, I did this cool thing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a lot of emotions, honestly. This is the case that I have spent more time, more years, more energy researching than anything else that I've ever done in all the years that I've been writing. And, you know, I'm, we're talking about like you know, almost 30 years now. And this is something that really has always affected me. And I initially, I was living in the Alton area across the river from St. Louis. And, you know, I knew the story of The Exorcist. I'd seen the movie a dozen times, at least. I knew it was supposed to be based on a true story. And I guess, you know, right around that time, I, I got really interested in trying to find out how much truth there was behind the story because I was hearing all kinds of things, you know, and were they true? Were they partially true? Were they part of the folklore or whatever? So I started to really dig into this story to try and find out just how real it was. After digging into it for years, you, you start to find that what William Peter Blatty created for his book that became the movie was actually pulled quite a bit from real life. It really has more truth in it than most people realize. I mean, obviously, he made some changes, he changed the identity of the boy to a girl. But he did that because Father Bowdern asked him to. Um, when he had a chance to interview uh, William Bowdern about this, who was the lead exorcist in the real story, Blatty had gotten interested in 1949 when the exorcism took place. He was a, a seminary student at Georgetown University, and he had seen an article that appeared in the Baltimore Sun about a meeting of some, you know, people who were interested in parapsychology. And there had been a minister there who talked about an exorcism. And he read this story in the article and went to his advisor to try to get a look at this diary that supposedly had been kept by the priests who were involved in the exorcism. And uh, he didn't get that right away, but he was able to talk to Father Bowdern. And Father Bowdern said, I'd really like you to protect this boy's identity as much as possible. And so Blatty went on to change it to a girl and incorporate a lot of the things he later found out into the story. And then, you know, in the early 70s, he put out the book, which then, you know, became the movie. Yeah. I mean, a part that part of it, for me, is very surreal to know that there were real people involved in the making of that film. I um, I did have the chance to interview a lot of people. One of the first people that I interviewed, in fact, was Walter Halloran, who had been a seminary student at the time of the exorcism and had helped out in it. From there, I did speak to some other people, talked to, well, I talked to everyone who was still alive that was involved, including one I didn't know about just a few years ago. At this point, they're all gone. Everyone is gone. Even Roland is gone now. So they've all since passed away. And I think that really does feel surreal to know what an important part. Everything I've written and everything I've done connected to this case and the real people involved, there's just no one left. And I think that's the important part of doing what I try to do is to preserve these stories. And we've preserved something that I think paints a real record of something terrible that happened to someone and it could happen to anyone. And I guess that I think is the important part of this to remember is that there was no reason that Roland was possessed. I mean, there, you know what I mean? There was no, he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't egg it on. He didn't, um, you know, invoke demons or whatever. You know, he just was this kid and he ended up being possessed by something and there's no explanation as to why. And I think that's something that's worthy of remembrance. 
But there is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there is speculation that he had an aunt played with a Ouija board with her and she had kind of gotten him into. That's absolutely not true. Not true? Not true at all. Yeah, it's not true at all. I um, I did a documentary about, was part of a documentary uh, late last year. It aired in February and it's on, I think it's on Travel Now, but it was on just Discovery Plus. And that's one of the things that they asked me about. And I provided them with the actual evidence. Aunt Matilda did not give Roland a Ouija board. That's a case of fiction influencing fact. When Blatty wrote this book, his editors said there has to be a reason why this little girl got possessed. Well, there is. It's a bigger reason. We don't have to go into the whole plot of the movie. There is a reason, but they needed something immediate that people could understand. So they brought in a Ouija board. And because the occult was in a big resurgence at the time, and there was already talk about, you know, oh, Ouija boards can be dangerous and that kind of thing. So they used that in the book and in the film to give it a reason for it. So Somehow that translated over to the real story and people started saying, oh, it's because Roland had a Ouija board, but he didn't. His aunt was not an occultist. She may have had an interest in that kind of thing and and may have talked about it. We'll never really know that for sure. But she didn't give him a Ouija board. In fact, she rarely ever traveled. Supposedly, she had come to visit him and brought a Ouija board. Well, Matilda Hendricks, which is what her name actually was, died very young. She was only 54 when she died. She had hypertension, diabetes, was in very, very poor health. She rarely ever traveled. And her health was so bad, she could never have children. That's why her and Roland were so close, because he was an only child. You know, she got to visit with him when they came back to visit St. Louis. See, his parents were from St. Louis. They had met and married here and then had moved out to Maryland. And that's where, to Cottage City, that's where his father was working. And so they did come back to visit sometimes, but Matilda never never went there. She just was unable to travel. The only person who did was Roland's grandmother, and she only came after her husband died in St. Louis. So that story is unfortunately not, you know, I mean, it makes great drama in believing that that's what happened, but that's one piece of it that actually isn't true. That's good to know, though. And see, that's why your job is so important. (laughs) Because sometimes fiction is more interesting than fact. And that's the unfortunate thing is that people... Yeah, not this story, though. I I don't think. Um, That's that's one thing I can always say about this story is that, you know, we always say truth is stranger than fiction. In this case, it really is. And so, and there are a lot of things that have been made up about this particular case. And they're never as interesting as the real thing. Because some of the real things in this story are just completely bizarre. So, you know, I I don't know why that happens, but it does. It's human nature, I think. So you've been to all the different buildings that were associated with the various parts, like where he stayed and then like where the exorcism was conducted, right? Well, I mean, what could be visited Um, right now? so So many of them are gone. You know, the Alexian Brothers Hospital, I mean, the hospital is still there, but not the hospital that Roland and the, those priests would have known. It has since completely been replaced, and it was replaced back in the late 70s. So there was no way to get into the old part of the building, not for me. I, I was, uh, you know, a little kid at the time. So I didn't get into that part of the building. The rectory that was located next to uh, St. Francis Xavier Church, the rectory that's there now is not the same one. That one was torn down years ago. I have been to the house in Cottage City where his family lived and where the exorcism began, but I've never been inside. I've been on the front porch. I was there for a documentary and uh, the producers, it was a, a crew from England and they were filming a documentary and I was there 
as part of the documentary. And when we went to the the house to talk to the owners about possibly filming there, they had no idea of the history of the house. <laughs> and so they were definitely not interested in anything to do with anything with this documentary. In fact, I'm going to say they were so freaked out, they probably moved <laughs> after that. But I have been to the house in Belnor where most of the exorcism took place. That was uh, Roland's uncle's home, um, his father's brother. And uh, they lived in Belnor, a nice little suburban brick house. And I have been to that house a number of times. I mean, that's really like the only thing left. And, um, you know, I will say the first time I visited, I did have a weird experience where I really felt um, something very odd in the room where the exorcism had been taking place. It was uh, Roland's cousin's room, his cousin Neil, that was his room. That's where Roland was staying. And so that's where, when things started to happen in St. Louis, the priest came and the exorcism began. Uh, but yeah, I did have a, I don't in any way claim to be psychic or, you know, I don't see dead people or hear them or anything like that. And I, I don't make any claims to that. But I will say, though, you know, there have been plenty of times over the years where I've gone to you know, hundreds of different places. And every once in a while, you'll get a bad feeling about a place. And that's exactly how I felt in that bedroom the first time I visited. I couldn't hardly walk through the doorway to the room. It just had such an odd feeling to it. And when I did, you could literally see the hair on, the, on my arm standing on end. Maybe it was just my imagination. You know, it could have certainly have been me just being really excited about the fact that I was walking, you know, in a, to me, a historic spot. But, you know, I don't know. But that's the only one I really ever felt that it had a weird energy, really. I've never been on the, in the inside of that building. I've only seen it from the outside. Beautiful mm -hmm. home. It is. Yeah, it is. There was a specific spot where I felt just from looking on the inside, I'm like, something about that particular room. And I'll have to send you the photo to see if it is the same room, because I think that would be kind of interesting. Okay. Yeah, please. So that's kind of interesting that you shared that because I always love when people's stories like <laughs> link up, you know, it's like a puzzle piece. Yeah. I lived on this apartment complex that was on Lindell, and I know he... Again, correct me if I'm mistaken, but he was baptized in that church that's like at the intersection of Lindell and Grand. Well, they tried to baptize him there. But they couldn't get him in, right? Right. They couldn't get him inside. Yeah, that was St. Francis Xavier. That was uh, Father Bowdern, Father William Bowdern, who um, became one of the exorcists. Um, he with Father Raymond Bishop, who kept the diary of the exorcism. But Father Bowdern was the pastor of St. Francis Xavier at the time of this, when the exorcism happened. Huh. So they did try to get Roland into that church to be baptized, and he, his uncle was driving the car. His parents were in the back seat with him. His aunt was in the front seat. And at some point, Roland just lost, completely lost it, jumped over the, the seat, grabbed a hold of the wheel and tried to wreck the car. And they had to bring it to a stop on the street. They bodily carried him to the church, trying to get him inside. Father Bowdern and his assistant, Father Dordery, tried to get him inside. They were dragging him and he just Finally, Father Bowden said, this isn't going to work because unless he wants this, it's not going to do us any good. And so they gave up. And eventually he was baptized at the Alexi Brothers Hospital later on. So you are right. That church technically is part of it. I mean, none of the, the exorcisms took place there. and But they did at the rectory that used to be next door. He was there for a couple of weeks in the spring of 49 before they took him to Alexi Brothers Hospital. When you drive by that church and know its connection to all of this, there's, it's definitely, a, again, a historic spot when it comes to this story. And I knew about the rectory. That's a replacement 
rectory. That's not the same one, but that's where the original was. Right. So that would have been, it's still the same piece of ground. So it's interesting because I have a weird incident that occurred to me that I'd love to share with you. Yeah, I wanted to hear this. You had mentioned something about that. So like I said, I used to live in that apartment complex at the end of the street. So I, for a while, I worked at this restaurant that was across the street from the Fox, same block. Okay, yeah. And one day, I don't know why, I was feeling really bold and I walked by where that rectory was and I was like, I want you to show me something that really scares me. And soon after that, I got this job as a travel bartender in Nebraska. Okay. You know, I don't know why I decided to go to Nebraska, but at the time I thought it was a good idea. Hey, it's an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And honestly, there were some good times with a lot of the bad that I experienced there. But <laughs> it was interesting because my roommate was from Maryland, not very far from Cottage. Uh... Cottage City, yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting at first. Mm-hmm. There was just other little things that just were very odd. I learned how terrible racism is. I mean, like, that sounds, I know how terrible racism is, but I guess, like, when you get to the point where you realize, like, you're not changing these people, like, they're okay with how they are. Right, right. And I think that really scared me. Like, for perspective, I met a man who, I don't know what you'd call that, like, a farmer? Like, he raised cattle? He raised cattle. A rancher. So he was a rancher, and he said to me at one point, not even any regret in his voice, he said, oh, yeah, these are my cows. I love them a lot. I call them my Black Lives Matter protesters. Okay. Wow. And I just was very like, wow. Nonchalant. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Just like the things that I experienced there really kind of did scare me to the point where I was like, oh, I think I got to go. Like, I think <laughs> I got to go. When I was getting ready to leave, my my roommates and I, we had bought this box of miscellaneous pens just because we were all like bartenders and servers. And we're like, whatever, we're just going to buy. We open this box, we dump it out. And the first pen I see when I'm looking down is a slew pen. Oh, <laughs> after you've had this on your mind all that yes. time. Yeah. And like right, like the day before I was going to leave. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, you know, it could be coincidence, perhaps. I don't know. But just a lot of different things there just screamed. This is a little bit more than <laughs> coincidence. Maybe you shouldn't have asked to see anything scary. So I shouldn't have. I, I got what I asked for. <laughs> well, right. That's true. That is true. I got what I asked for. But yeah, that was one of those things where I was like, Ugh. and especially at the time, like I, I basically lived on SLU's campus because of where my where my apartment was located. I had the surgical building on one side and then I had just these other buildings across the street. So I was basically on, I was like, oh, this is just hitting a little too close to home. I don't like <laughs> it. Basically, this is all to say, don't taunt the unknown because yeah. you will get an answer and you might not necessarily love it. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with this particular case, is it one that still keeps you up at night sometimes? Or is, is there one that's really beyond this one? No, it's 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 this one. I mean, this is the one I think I've, like I said, I've devoted more time to this than anything else. I mean, I've written about a lot of stuff and there are cases that do haunt me, but this is one that in particular, I think about a lot. I know there's still more to this story and I've got more to this story that I've never 
written or talked about or revealed just because I didn't want to do it while some people were still alive. Not that any of it's, you know, bad or libelous or anything. I just didn't want to share any personal details about things that I had. I mean, there's always going to be more, I think, I always find out something new to this story. I mean, like when a few years ago, I had learned that there was a monk from the old Alexian Brothers Hospital that was still alive. And he wanted to tell his story. And they reached, his family reached out to me because he'd never talked about what happened during the exorcism. He was there. He was one of the attendants, one of the orderlies who was taking care of uh, Roland at the hospital. And he wanted to tell me what he'd seen because he felt it was so important that people knew there was evil in the world. I mean, that was, for me, that was probably one of the most momentous meetings that I'd ever had just because I thought, you know, everybody but Roland at that point was gone. And Roland didn't really want to talk. I mean, he talked, I talked to him once. He really didn't have much to say. I mean, he said, you know, you're going to be disappointed, but I don't remember any of that. You know, I mean, for him, it was, he, he, he described it as when people told him about what had happened during the exorcism, he described it as being like someone else's life that he was being told about because he didn't remember the things that happened during the time he was going through all that. He remembered what happened, like say during the day, but during the exorcisms themselves, he had no memory of. So, you know, I had spoken to Father Halloran. He had told me what he had witnessed, but he wasn't skeptical, but he was always, he always said, well, I, you know, I don't feel like I'm qualified, blah, blah, blah. So he was always a little hesitant. But when I talked to Brother Greg, the monk who had been at Alexian Brothers, he just poured out this story of the things he saw and the things he witnessed, you know, as far as, you know, he swore to me, he was holding Roland by his ankles and the boy levitated about 12 inches off the bed. You know, he just said, when you walked into that room, you knew there was something evil in there. I've always been skeptical about some things, you know, and I'd always been kind of skeptical about the story as far as, you know, exactly, you know, not knowing whether I really truly believe in demons the way the Catholic Church describes them. I have since come to really believe that there are malevolent entities out there of some kind, you know, both good and, I mean, entities of both good and bad, but, and I think the church calls them demons and, you know, other people call them other things, you know, our ancestors called them gods, you know, so there's all kinds of things out there. But that was, I think my experience with him is something that really kind of cemented for me that something really horrific had happened in this story to this kid. And that's the kind of thing, it, it does keep me up at night. I mean, no, you know, I know we're saying that as a, you know, just kind of a phrase, but honestly it does uh, because it's just such a, I mean, it's such a terrifying thing. And to think that it happened to some kid who didn't know it was coming and had no reason to expect it, that's scary. It really is. I guess I take this story seriously. I mean, there are parts about it are funny and silly, and, and some of it just is, you know. But on the other hand, when it comes right down to it, and you think about this, you sit and think about this too much, it really, it really can keep you up at night. It really can. You have to laugh. You can't just sit around and, and worry all the time about, you know, oh my God, I'm going to be possessed. I mean, who knows? That may end up making it happen. You know, we've already talked about our sheer force of will already in the show. Yeah. So let's not dwell on that just in yeah. case, you know. Up until about 25, like I, and maybe I'm still a little worried deep down, but like I was legitimately like this could happen to me at any moment. The unknown is, is just one of those things. We don't understand it. And I think that that's also what makes it so much scarier, mm -hmm. you know. 
Sure. Troy, thank you so much for taking the time. Where can we support you and, you know, keep up with everything that you're doing? Well, um, as you mentioned, we do, um, Cody and I do the American Hauntings podcast, which you can find on, you know, iTunes and Spotify and I don't know, all those other places. The technical end's his. <laughs> I just I just show up. So we're, we're there. Um, the best, the easiest way to reach me is through the website and it's AmericanHauntings.net. And you can find, you know, anything we've got going on through there as far as tours and events and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I, I did write a book about this case called The, uh, the Devil Came to St. Louis. Um, it's in its third edition now, and um, it's it has been updated. There's a lot of new material in it. So um, if anybody's interested in that, they can pick up the book. Otherwise, you know, I'm out there floating around on all the same old social media things that everybody else is, I think. So probably best way to find me. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll include all the links to that in the show notes so everyone can find you. Thank you again for listening to this episode. To support Troy in the show notes, you will find where you can find him on Twitter, his podcast, and where you can buy his book. Additionally, in the show notes, I have the links to support Missing Witches, the link to book a tarot reading at Ritual Craft, or if you want to book something in person here in St. Louis, where you can do that. Additionally, there's also an option to set up a virtual reading if you want to do that. Listen, I am here to help you out. If there is something that I could clarify for you by all means, and I would really love to work with you. Looking forward to the next time we're going to share space together. And might this be a reminder that no matter how much they try to tell you that dabbling in the occult will lead to getting possessed, there are victims of evil entities that did nothing to deserve it. So keep being the bad bitch witch that you are. Okay, bye. Have a good one. Ooh, yeah. Ooh.